This is Tom Fox, and I would like to welcome you greetings and felicitations. In this podcast series, I'm going to be visiting with thought leaders, entrepreneurs, historians, and a wide variety of other people on topics that are outside the area of compliance, but are of great interest to myself and to listeners to the Compliance Podcast Network. This episode begins a five-part series where I look at great structures from antiquity to modern times, consider the form, function, and structure of each, and use that as a lens to explore topics in a best practices compliance program. I hope you'll enjoy this special series on greetings and felicitations. In this concluding part five, we look at the Tacoma Narrows Bridge failure and preventing failure in your compliance program. We conclude our exploration of great structures and compliance by looking at the Tacoma Narrows Bridge failure and preventing failure in your compliance program. We focus on structural engineering failures from suspension bridges, the challenges of wind in their construction and maintenance. As throughout the series of podcasts, I'm drawing on a great courses offering entitled Understanding the World's Greatest Structures, Science and Innovation from Antiquity to Modernity, taught by Professor Stephen Ressler. In his chapter on suspension bridges, he notes that the Tacoma Narrows Bridge was the third longest span in the world when it opened, the month of July 1940. Yet it collapsed only four months later in one of the most visual images of a bridge's collapsing. This is because it was filmed. Um, The collapse itself was due to the inherent flexibility of cable as a structural form. A bridge can move in longitudinal vibration, that is, up and down, and it can twist from side to side, or laterally. Most people recognized unstiffened suspension bridges are as old as mankind and engineering itself. It was not until the 1820s that serious study was brought to bear on some of the wind-related collapses of suspension bridges. The initial solution was to simply use more weight to reinforce the span. However, while that solution did bring some stability, it reinforced damage as a structure became the textbook example of Newton's second law of motion, which states that the acceleration of an object is dependent upon two variables, the net force acting upon the object and the mass of the object, meaning that once a mass or heavy weight is in motion, it is more likely or more resistant, rather, to deceleration. It was the scientific methodology that led to the disaster of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. An engineer named Leon Moiseev had developed a theory that long suspension bridges were heavy enough that they did not require stiffening trusses because their mass stabilized them against wind-induced vibration. However, this theory failed to take into account how air flows around a bridge and the dynamic response of the structural system. Ressler concluded by stating, This case has become a classic symbol 
of the dangers of arrogance, born of overconfidence in scientific design based design measures and belt and suspenders engineering has made a bit of a comeback. I thought about the catastrophic failure of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge in the context of one of the greatest risks in compliance, which of course is third parties. Many non-compliance corporate employees assume that if a third party passes due diligence muster, the company is in the clear. After all, you cannot stop a third party from making a bribe or payment or other corrupt payment. Fortunately, the Department of Justice does not take such a myopic view of many business types. Under the FCPA, for example, a company is responsible for all the actions of its third-party representatives. The real work around your third-party compliance program begins after the contract is signed, and it is in the management of the third-party relationship that this work occurs. While the FCPA Resource Guide's second edition itself provides only that the company should undertake some form of ongoing monitor of third-party relationships. As an additional means of prevention and detection of wrongdoing, an experienced compliance and audit team must actively engage in home office and field activities to ensure that financial controls and policy provisions are routinely complied with and that remedial measures for violations or gaps are tracked solutions implemented and then rechecked, which of course is continuous monitoring leading to continuous improvement. Carol Switzer, founder of OSEG, has proposed a five-step process for managing corruption risks. Overall, which I've adapted for third-party risks. Number one, screen. Monitor third-party records against trusted data sources for red flags. Two, identify Establish helplines and other open channels for reporting of issues and asking compliance-related questions by third parties. Three, investigate. Use appropriately qualified investigative teams to obtain and assess information about suspected violations. Four, analyze. Evaluate data to determine concerns and potential problems by using data analytics tools and reporting. Five, finally, or rather audit. Finally, your company should have regular intervals audit reviews and inspections of third-party anti-corruption programs, including testing and assessment of internal controls to determine if enhancement or modification is necessary. Additionally, there are several functions in a company that play a role in the ongoing monitoring of the third party. While there is overlap, I believe that each of these roles fulfills a critical function in any best practices compliance program. Relationship Manager. There should be a relationship manager for every third party which your company does business with. The relationship manager should be a business unit employee who is responsible for monitoring, maintaining, and continuously evaluating the relationship between your company and the third party. Second, compliance professional. Just as a company needs a subject matter expert in anti-bribery compliance to be able to work with the business folks and answer questions that come up in the day-to-day routine of doing business internationally, third parties also need such access. A third party may not be large enough to have its own compliance staff, so I do advocate a company providing such a dedicated resource to third parties. The role can include anti-corruption training for the third party, either through on-site or remote mechanisms. The compliance practitioner should work closely with a relationship manager to provide advice, training, and communication to the third party. Third, third-party oversight committee. 
A company can have a third-party oversight committee which reviews documents relating to the full panoply of the third party's relationships with the company. It can be a formal structure or some other type of group, but the key is to have a senior management put a second set of eyes on any third party who might represent the company on the sales side of things. In addition to the basic concept of process validation of your management of your third parties, this is recognized as a way to deliver additional management of that high third-party risk. After the third party has relationship has begun on a commercial basis, the third-party oversight committee should monitor the third party on a no less than an annual basis. The annual audit should include a review of remedial diligence, investigations, and evaluation of any new or supplemental risk associated with negative information discovered from a review of financial audits reported on the third party. Third party oversight committee should review any reports of materials, breaches of contracts, including breach of requirements of the company's code of ethics and compliance. In addition to the above remedial review, the third party oversight committee should review all payments requested by the third party to assure such payment is within the company guidelines and is warranted by the contractual relationship uh, with the third party. Finally, the Third Party Oversight Review Committee should review any requests to provide the third party any type of non-monetary compensation and, as appropriate, review or rather approve such requests. Next, audit. A key tool in the managing of the relationship with third party post-contract is auditing the relationship. I hope that you will have secured audit rights as that is an important clause in any compliance terms and conditions. Your audit should be systematic, independent, and documented process for obtaining evidence and evaluating it objectively to determine the extent to which your compliance terms and conditions are followed. Perhaps now you will understand when I say that managing the relationship of your third party is where the real work of your compliance comes to the fore. It is also demonstrates a key difference in having a paper compliance program and actually doing compliance. Having a paper program is simple, but doing compliance is not always easy. You will have to work at it to maintain an effective program. This concludes our special five-part series on great structures throughout history, and I hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast series based around some of these great structures, their engineering concepts and innovations, and how they all relate to a best practice in your compliance program. I'm a huge fan of the great course offerings, and if you're interested in learning in this or many other great areas, it is one of the best resources available to you. I've linked to the Great Courses site in the show notes, and I would urge you to check them out. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this special podcast series. I've written a blog post series on these topics as well, and you can check them out at the Compliance Podcast Network. Check on or click on the blog tab. I hope you will join me for my special podcast series, The Corruption Files, where with Hughes Hubbard partner Mike DiBernardis, I take a look at some of the most significant FCPA enforcement actions, both from the DOJ and SEC. Additionally, I'm doing a separate podcast series on the role of the board in compliance with my good friend and colleague, Jonathan Marks. So if you like a review of the role of the board in compliance and best practices on how to achieve it, check out that series. Both are available on the Compliance Podcast Network.